0: Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed
1: their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans.
2: We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from
0: around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or
1: the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about First World War memorials. Please be advised, this episode contains mentions of blood, and war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Now let's get on to the show. I was originally going to title this episode cenotaphs specifically. But upon doing my research and looking into it a little further, I realized that's a very specific term for a type of memorial and there's much more mm-hmm. going on than that. So I made it a little more general with this title, First World War Memorials.
2: Well, so it sounds like you you've made yourself a different topic for another episode.
0: Yes. <laughs> what's the difference between a cenotaph and any other type of memorial
1: oh we'll get to that much later
0: okay Okay. getting ahead of myself so yeah no
1: worries so when it comes to the first world war there's a lot going on related to death obviously it's a war Mm -hmm. people are dying so in the future maybe next year or whatever season two you may see another episode adjacent to this topic from me, particularly about the war cemeteries, Uh, but this is specifically about the memorials which would be placed in the combatant countries. For the most part in the combatant countries, in some cases in the countries that the war is being fought in, but we'll get to that. So before we really dive into it, I just wanted to get your impressions of growing up in Canada, particularly surrounding Remembrance Day. So none of us knew each other when we were in high school, say, for example, or younger than that, which is, for me, I felt like a big part of Remembrance Day was that assembly that you'd go to... Always. ...during the day, Um, and that is, like, my most strong memories associated with Remembrance Day. What about you folks?
2: Uh, Very much the assemblies for me. I was in band and choir when I was in high school. So it was it was weeks of listening to John on the trumpet practicing the last post a lot of times. Learning some very morose songs. Somebody reading Flanders Field every mm-hmm. year, so we have not all read it a hundred times. Uh, getting stabbed many, many times by the, the poppy oh, yes. needle. And every year there was a new, like, fandangled way of not getting stabbed which was stuff like taking the like eraser out of the back of your mechanical pencil and putting it on, doubling it back through the flower, mm-hmm. trying to like bend the pin back, which only ever made it worse. You just stab yourself. <laughs> you just stab yourself. Uh, you become wo- wounded as well on <laughs> Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. But not a, not a lot of, I mean some war vets in my family, but not not in a capacity that it gets talked about or really brought up around Remembrance Day. My grandfather's Dutch and he fought... Well, he fought in the Second World War, but... So no, like, World War I vets, really, in my family that, that I know of. So it was very much, yeah, the school kind of pomp and parade situation. How about you, Christia? Definitely had the
0: school assemblies. One of my best friends in high school was American. And at one point in high school, she had to do a speech. And something about that speech always stood out to me, though, because I guess... In the States, they don't have, like, it's not a federal holiday. Like, it is up here. And I've been to a couple ceremonies, like, uh, you know, the Laying of the Wreaths. I've gone to one or two of those over the years. And my mom has talked about, I believe it was the First World War, that her grandfather was too old to join the war. But his younger brothers were of age. And so he lied about his age and went and fought, and he was the only one that came back. Oh no. Yeah, so I've, I grew up with that story. Um, but Remembrance Day isn't, it's just kind of something that happens for me personally. I don't really, I'll just, like sometimes think about taking a moment. And I am kicking myself because I don't have a poppy this year. And I've noticed that a lot of people actually don't have poppies. Like I was downtown yesterday, and I saw maybe one. Usually, like I remember like a decade ago, everyone had a poppy. And yeah. the practice definitely seems to kind of be fading out because I guess digital poppies are a thing now <laughs> or something. What?
2: Yeah, God. it's so stupid. That's strange. I'm just yes. planning on crocheting one because I don't want to get stabbed. Well, uh,
1: I have a lot of those experiences as well, particularly being someone who was in band and choir. There was one person that was always designated to do the last post, which was usually a trumpet player. So that was never me because yeah. I did not play trumpet. But same. You just absorb and sit there and listen to it. I have a, that song just ingrained in my
2: brain from that. I think I've like repressed it out of my... I'm like, I just know that it's dark assembly. It's quiet. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't, re- don't remind me. <laughs> Anyways,
1: Remembrance Day really made an impression on me as a kid. I remember doing... There were Remembrance Day contests... Essay writing, poetry writing, art contests—I think d- operated by the Canadian Legion. Um, I think we had that too. Um, I and I always really that. loved participating in those. I think I actually won some award for just our school in particular for poetry wow. once when I was in like grade five or something. I couldn't tell you what the poem was. I didn't. I barely knew what I was writing about at that point because we didn't learn about World War One until grade eleven. Yeah. So when I finally started learning about it, it all kind of started clicking as to why I've been doing this, this ceremony every November, my entire childhood. And that kind of sparked an interest in the First World War that has continued through not only my undergraduate degree, but my master's degree as well. Both of you are well aware of this but I will say this for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, My final project for my master's degree was based on the First World War, particularly Canadian men and masculinity in the First World War. Um, So obviously this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm excited. And we're planning on releasing this a couple days before Remembrance Day. So I hope people enjoy. So to get started with the, the actual content here, not that Remembrance Day isn't fun to talk about, I want to share a little bit of information about the First World War, just in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know, isn't aware of the basics, or has forgotten since they heard it for the first time in history class. So the First World War has the name for a reason. It was a global war. It was fought in many different places, mostly centering around Europe and the Mediterranean Sea, so there's a little bit happening in, like, Turkey and Mm -hmm. Egypt and, like, that area that we in Canada don't learn a lot about because Canada was mostly fighting with the British on the Western Front. Um, But it was happening in that area as well. And it was fought by countries or colonies from around the globe because Europe at the time was really into going abroad and uh, claiming colonies. They were really into that. At the time, oh, sure. so... Get out of town! When they started squabbling the European nations amongst themselves in Europe proper, they pulled their entire web, worldwide web, not the, not the internet, but the worldwide web of colonies into this scuffle with them, which is how Canada became involved in the First World War, because we were part of the former British Empire. Still had allegiance to Britain, in other words. So, just to give you... A taste of how many countries or countries that are now countries that were colonies at the time were involved. Uh, I have this map, and I realize that the listeners are not going to be able to see this, but I want to show you. This is the map oh, of everybody that's involved in World War One. Oh my God! So the green is the Allied or Triple Entente side, which I will explain in a moment and then the orange is Germany, Austria-Hungary, like the Central Powers is what they're referred to as. So there were a select few European countries that were neutral during the war, famously Switzerland, um, Sweden as well. Spain was neutral during the First World War. But for the most part, Europe itself was all embroiled in this conflict.
2: I have a fun fact, actually, about Switzerland and the time it spent not fighting in this war. Uh, you know how the Swiss are really famous for their watches? It's because during the First World War, while all the other countries were busy doing war stuff, the Swiss were like, well, we have time to get ahead on the watch game. <laughs> so they, they got better at watches while everybody else was out fighting in the trenches, and that's why Swiss watches are so good compared to other European watch making industries wow just a fun fact
1: taking advantage (laughs) of that opportunity uh so the primary combatants you have two sides you have the allied powers which was born out of an alliance called the triple entente which consisted of britain france and russia primarily that original alliance but eventually on their same side you have italy japan United States, Serbia, India, Canada, Australia, Belgium, Montenegro, Portugal, Romania, so many different countries on that side. And then on the opposite side, you have an alliance that was originally called the Triple Alliance that was between Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy, interestingly enough. And I'll clarify why Italy's on the Allied side for fighting in a moment. So Germany, Italy, and Austria-Hungary was that original alliance. But the actual combatant side, the central powers, which was what they came to be known as, was Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, which most people would know as Turkey today, and Bulgaria. And then, of course, on top of that, all the associated colonies that they have spread throughout the world. Quite literally, a world war very hard to stay neutral uh, in this kind of war situation on the continent so the first world war lasted from july 28th 1914 until november 11th 1918 and november 11th is in many many countries remembrance day or something similar to that so remembrance day to us in canada it has many names the funny thing about Italy is that the original Triple Alliance pact between Italy, Austria-Hungary, and Germany, it was a defensive pact, and because Germany was one of the main aggressors mm. at the beginning of World War I, Italy was not automatically drawn into the war because it wasn't a need to defend Germany. If Germany had been, or Austria-Hungary, had been attacked then Italy would have become involved, but they were not. So they stayed out of it essentially until April 26th, 1915, when they decided now we're going to join the other side. (laughs) We're going to join the allied powers. We just, we think our chances are better over there. And, And that's like a gross oversimplification. But again, that's not the focus of the episode. So you have the allied powers on one side. You have the central powers on the other side. And they're fighting this war. And at the time, obviously, it's not called the First World War. Because how do they know there's going to be a second one? So at the time, it's referred to as the Great War or the War to End All Wars. Because of the scale and the scope of it, it just took over everybody's attention all across the world. Even for countries that weren't involved, it was still the news of the time. And at the beginning of the war... Many men from nations all over the world enlisted eagerly, hoping to join in and do their bit. But the reality that men faced on the war fronts was far, far, far from what anybody had anticipated. Because the First World War, the style of warfare was unlike anything anybody had ever encountered before. So the First World War is actually characterized as murderous without precedent. Is what one scholar has called it, um, oh as it killed on average five thousand six hundred men every day that it continued. Holy shit. The style of warfare is a little bit of a, a paradox, because it's heavy on offense, but it's also heavy on defense. But it's also hard to defend yourself as an individual soldier, just a just a person out on a battlefield in this type of warfare. So on the offense side, you have artillery, you have shells, you have machine guns, bayonets, barbed wire, poisonous gas attacks. On the defense side, you have trench warfare. So digging in in trenches, especially along the Western Front, digging in trenches, which if you don't pop out of the trenches, maybe you're going to get hit by an artillery shell, but that wasn't a guarantee. But as an individual person fighting in this conflict, as soon as you pop your head out of that trench or you go up over into no man's land, which is what the space in between the Allied lines and the central power lines were referred to as, as soon as you head in there, what hope do you have against machine guns? What hope do you have against artillery shells falling on top of you? So while... The history of the First World War portrays it as this war of attrition where nothing much is really happening. The lines of war aren't moving very much because of the defense of the trenches. For the actual people that are fighting, you're so vulnerable. You're absolutely so vulnerable. And that, unsurprisingly, leads to that high number of deaths. So that about 5,600 people per day dying from this conflict. And the war lasted over four years. So that's a long time. And that's a lot of people dying.
2: That's a lot. Because it, it had like a really profound shift on how people viewed inter-country conflict as well, right? Because it was no longer a glory thing. It was, it was a, a dangerous, not a deadly thing to sign up to go to war again.
1: Yeah, and that's part of the, the characterization of the war as the war to end all wars. It was so bloody and so violent and so many people died. For the end product of what? It changed a decent amount of the, the map lines, especially in the southeast part of Europe in the Balkan region, which is kind of where the conflict was sparked originally. It was over conflicts between Austria, Hungary, and Serbia particularly and then there's that whole interweaving web of defensive alliance and all that that basically was the the spark that started the first world war but when you compare that against the amount of death and destruction it's hard to like you how do you value human life right that's yeah. essentially would be the question that you're asking if you're asking was it worth it
2: i mean I would say probably a pretty resounding no. I think one day in which you're like, hey, 5,600 people died today unnecessarily because of land disputes and political shit. i would be like, that's enough. Call it off. We don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah. Uh, but of course, I'm not the, the leader of an early 20th century European country who already has no problem taking over other people's countries, taking their shit and enslaving their people. So, <laughs>
1: Yeah. And... <laughs> To to be sure, the people in the Balkan region who saw themselves become their own independent nation, uh, I'm sure that was a good thing for them. Um, yeah, that's true. But like I said, to weigh that against the sheer amount of death and destruction, that's like, that's really hard. But <laughs> there was a lot of death going on. So Most of my knowledge, particularly about this conflict, comes from the Canadian experience because I'm Canadian and I'm interested in learning about that. And Canadians were primarily fighting on the Western Front. And so the situation on the Western Front was very, very bloody, really poor conditions. And so these soldiers were seeing their friends and their their colleagues buried, mutilated, killed by This impersonal style of warfare, the bullets and artillery, which was unusual. Previously, war was you go up and you stab someone or you shoot them in a gentlemanly line as the two armies clash together. But this was quite a different style of warfare. And for a lot of men, particularly the ones who were writing home to their loved ones, because that was something that a lot of men overseas did, they were expressing the belief that to survive in these conditions it wasn't through proficiency it wasn't through their skill it was luck it was divine providence that would save them from dying just pure coincidence that they happened to live and their buddy 2 feet next to them died
2: yeah cuz how else how else can you begin to rationalize your friend, you're having a chat with a friend and he stands up a little bit too high and and then he's gone.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So very (laughs) traumatic. Lots of people are dying. And even beyond that, the amount of casualties, so wounded, that's also really high. So just to give you a sense of the scale of this. So the total strength, the total manpower on each side. For the allied side, it was about 43 million combatants for the central powers side. It was about 25 million combatants and the losses. So on the allied side, there were about 5.5 million dead combatants. And on the other side, about 4.3 million dead. And that's not even counting the wounded. That's not counting the civilian dead whose villages were destroyed in Belgium, in France, in the Balkan region, on the Eastern Front, in Russia, Poland, that area. That's just the combatant deaths.
2: That's like if you killed everybody in, in the greater Vancouver area twice over. Like with with numbers that big, right? It can be hard to think like how many is is 5 million people? How many mm-hmm. is 4 million people? And I found that at the start of COVID, the only way that it makes sense to me is condensing it into if these had all happened in one place, how far is the reach on that? How big is that splash? And I'm like, I feel like that would take out everybody in the three largest cities in this province, Vancouver, Victoria, and Kelowna. So you had a
0: one in 12 chance of dying, essentially, if you Mm -hmm. were a combatant.
1: Yeah, and if you want to do the math on uh, casualties, so dying or getting wounded, so 43 Mm -hmm. million total on the Allied side, combatants, and 18 million wounded or killed. Ooh, Christ.
0: 18 million?
1: 18 million. Damn. If you have an immediate family
0: of mom, dad, and maybe a sibling, the chances of Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of you is
2: either going to be severely injured or die in the war. Yeah, So you're more likely to to get injured or killed in this war than you are to roll a 20 on a D20. Mm -hmm. A critical miss or a critical success.
1: Yeah, so the deadliness of this war, to say the least, is out of control. (laughs) Out of control. So that's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, and in other people's opinions as well, the First World War has had such an impact on our culture and on how we conceptualize war nowadays, because, and this is the, the really important part and the crux kind of of this episode, is that as we talked about these nations, these European nations are fighting and most of the fighting is centered around Europe, but they have this worldwide web of colonies and influence that pulls everybody into the conflict And when there's that many people who are dying and their bodies are in Europe or in the Middle East or in just around the Mediterranean area, logistically, you cannot return those bodies home. And for the people that are left behind, their traditional ways of grieving and mourning and burial are being disrupted. And so that is where we see these memorials come into play, primarily in the countries that are sending their men to Europe, Um, even in the case of Britain, which is just a short hop over. They didn't get special treatment and get their men sent back over if they died over in France. So there's cemeteries popping up all over Europe. Uh, And maybe we'll get to that in a future episode because that warrants its own Look into an investigation. But for the countries that don't get to bury their soldiers on their own soil, what a lot of the communities are doing, and a lot of this is done at the community level rather than on a national level, although there are mm-hmm. national monuments put up, is that they're putting up statues, they're putting up obelisks, they're putting up plaques in the church of names. Of everybody from their community who has gone to serve and who has died in the conflict. And the names is a really big thing for memorializing the First World War. There's this expectation that all individual soldiers would be memorialized. First, because that was an easy way to recognize these vast number of people that are dying. But also it's symbolic, because without that physical body to grieve over, seeing your loved one's name up on that plaque or carved into that obelisk can just help serve that purpose a little bit. And like in Canada, for example, when we have Remembrance Day ceremonies, it's a time that the whole community comes together. And this was very much the case in the interwar years, is that the whole community would come together To take that moment to grieve the lost people from their community whose bodies weren't there. So it's not only an individual thing just to see your loved one's name up there, but it's also a community healing moment in some respects. Um, The Canadian Legion describes war memorials in this way. Unlike monuments, which are structures that pay tribute to the achievements, heritage, or ideals of a person, group, event, or time in history, war memorials and cenotaphs are built to honor and remember those killed in conflicts. War memorials help us to never forget. And as I said before, the First World War, the Great War, really started to change how people worldwide think about conflict, about war, about sacrificing that many people, that many bodies, that many humans for political scuffles. And I just think that's so cool is maybe the wrong word. As a historian, I think it's cool. And I get to say that looking back in hindsight that I didn't live through it. I didn't have to bear that emotional burden at the time. But to just have this conflict that spanned the entire globe, drew everyone in, and have it change the way that so many people across our entire earth think about death and think about war and think about how do you commemorate the people who have died. I just think that's, I think it's neat.
2: (laughs) And that's why
1: I'm so interested in the First World War. We have the luxury of being able to
0: say it's cool because we didn't have to deal with it. But we can appreciate in retrospect the outcomes of certain aspects of it as historians.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. But,
0: while still while still being like that was f- <laughs> let's
1: never do that again. Please let's never no do this again. Yeah. And yeah. then they did twenty years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Awful in the in the traditional meaning. And I maybe I'm getting ahead here, but the that whole thing where it changes our perception of what war is i think too a lot of people have the the bar for what constitutes a war has been moved so high that even that now things that are and that would have previously been considered massive wars are now downgraded to conflicts right yes that's a good point because we don't want to
1: admit there's a war going on
2: yeah, yeah, and because because we have this new definition of war, which I think maybe contributes a little bit to underreporting and, and lack of attention for things like the what's going on in Palestine, what's been going on in Syria for a long time, mm-hmm. right? These, like, civil conflicts and, like, small quote-unquote small wars that are between like two nations or only a couple nations but doesn't span multiple There's continents. hundreds of thousands of people dying but you know yeah, it's not like, as bad as it as uh, the Great War. Yeah I imagine the like the daily lives of people in those smaller conflicts is probably about as intense as it was for a civilian during the First World War because your your life can only be full of so much and war is war when you are smack in the middle of it. it doesn't, yeah. If you're in the middle of a storm, you don't know how far out it goes. But yeah, that, the kind of the gravity that we attribute to those experiences and to those people going through that scenario and just on the civilian level, not necessarily on the armed level because warfare is always progressing unfortunately. It's a huge pusher of technological innovation, I think really says a lot about The way that the First World War and then the Second World War changed the scales. Mm -hmm.
0: There's a quote that I really, really like from a TV show that is very near and dear to my heart. MASH. The whole series takes place during the Korean War. And at one point, it's one of the doctors talking to the father as he's operating on somebody. He's doing meatball surgery on someone. And he talks about how war is worse than hell. Because somebody says, ah, war, war is hell. And he says, well, no, war isn't hell. War is war and hell is hell. And of the two, war is actually a lot worse. Father, kind of wanting to prod on this discussion, uh, is like, well, what do you, how do you, Hawkeye, how do you figure that? And Hawkeye replies, you know, there's no innocent bystanders in hell. Sinners go to hell, traditionally. But war is full of the innocent kids old ladies the infirmed and he says something along the lines of everybody involved in war to some extent with the exception of you know the higher ups is an innocent bystander so it's interesting looking at the great war and comparing it to our small air quote conflicts of today it just it it just brings it all home
1: Yeah. And the thing that really gets me about the First World War, the Great War, is that when you learn about why, how it got started and why these defensive alliances and all this tension going on in Europe at the time between these nations that wanted to expand their empires worldwide and inferiority complexes forming because they don't have as many colonies as these other nations. And there's so much tension that's obviously at the level, the national level, like the politics level. But then the people who are actually actually so negatively impacted by the war's effects are the civilians living in the war zones, first of all. Mm-hmm. And also the soldiers who sign up. And there's a good spread of different classes in the fighting forces. But when you're the private who's in the trenches and going over the top with all your other privates, you're probably coming from the lower classes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, When you're from the higher classes, you have a name and you have status and you're more likely to end up an officer or a general. And this isn't always the way that it is, but as a rule, that's how it kind of played out.
0: Well, it's like just with Jack O'Reilly, who is from the museum that Janine and I work at, You know, he fought in the First World War, but he got to hang out in a kite balloon the whole time, and he got to rise to the ranks because he was from an aristocratic family. But it wasn't necessarily that he was from an aristocratic family that he got that position. It was... I'm sure that that probably helped, but it was also, like, he had the education to become a surveyor, which would then be more useful than, you know, the baker's son. So he was able to... Get essentially a
1: safer job in the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Systemic, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I kind of had this thought when you were talking about the, how there's this new style of warfare, right, where there's no more gentleman, gentlemanly scraps between two lads with pointy sticks. Yeah, um, and it, it feels like there was a shift as well from warfare being something that people did to each other in a more intimate way to an economic war who can afford the most bullets and. Mm-hmm shells and so on and so forth which countries have the wealth for the educated folks who are making better weapons and can afford the supplies and who have the colonial resources right so it feels almost like there's a real definite slide into it being an economic battle Mm -hmm. as well which is really fucked up
1: absolutely and I could talk all night about the First World War and the reasons why I think it's interesting, but reading the letters written by the soldiers, when they go in and they're expecting one style of warfare and they get there and it's something completely different and they go in as war is this adventure and I'm going to become a man or prove my my manhood by doing this, which is what men quote-unquote men at the time did according to the structure of gender and society and then they get there and it's not this gentlemanly war you don't survive because you're skilled and you're manly you survive because of luck or because of god if that's what you believe in and it just seems so senseless and you see good men being killed for no reason. It's not that they were a bad soldier. It's not that they messed up. It wasn't due to their lack of skill. It's just because there's a shell that fell on them or we went over the top and, uh uh-oh, there's a machine gun on the other side or someone got stuck in the barbed wire or there was a gas attack that came down. The technology is outpacing the human capability to survive it. And that's really shocking for people, really shocking for the men that go because it wasn't anything like what they expected. But here they are and they're embroiled in it and they don't have the option to back out now. So they just have to fight their way through it. And if they survive, they survive. And if they don't, then they don't. And they don't have any other option than that. So First World War, it's like this turning point of technology and war and how people see it at just, there's so many reasons why I think it's interesting. So you'll hear more about the first world war in future episodes. So I wanted to get into the nitty gritty a little bit about types of memorials. Cause there's more than one type of memorial. There's many types. People have come That's up real. with many, many creative ways to commemorate the dead of world war one and subsequent wars. So they can be really decorative or they can be super utilitarian. For example, there's sculptures that depict national or empire symbols, such as the Gallic rooster, just French the Romanian vulture, really bringing the nationalism or the imperialism into it, which is not for everybody. If you want to go more simple, you can make, A sculpture of an ordinary soldier, which was very common in Canada, just to have a standing sculpture of just a run-of-the-mill ordinary soldier, because those were the men that were by far the vast number of casualties. And that was on purpose to make it a low-ranking, nondescript soldier, just to be representative of the masses. Uh, You can go for an obelisk, which is kind of that, I don't know how to describe it, a pole, not a pole,
2: square pole with pointy tip. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. It's uh, a
2: sword that's the same the same size on all sides.
1: Yeah, very simple. Uh, these were super popular in Britain, France, Australia, and Romania. They're relatively cheap to build, and they fit well. They're like nondescript, and they fit well with civic infrastructure, so they don't stick out, but they're powerful. Or You could go for a memorial hall, which would be more of a a grand building. Apparently, this is something that was done in Australia and in the United States. The United States was a late entrant into Mm -hmm. the First World War, joining in 1917, but they still committed quite a number of men to the cause. Or you can go for an avenue of honor, which is essentially a road that's lined with trees. With memorial plaques along it. So as you walk along it or drive along it or ride along it, whatever. Yeah. There's names, essentially. Just memorial plaques in general, you could also go for. Like I said previously, like in a church, in a civic building or something like that, wherever you want to memorialize your dead. Or there's also this thing called a book of remembrance. And there are eight of these associated with Canada, eight of these books of remembrance. And there's one whole book dedicated to the First World War. So these books are housed in the Memorial Chamber in the Peace Tower of the Canadian Parliament Buildings in Ottawa. And I've seen these in person because I went on a band trip to Ottawa and that area uh, when I was in high school. And we got a chance to see them. So like I said, there's a whole book, one of eight dedicated to the first world war and then there's one for the second world war or the Korean war and so on. How big are the books? Um, they're quite large. I don't know physically. I don't remember, but the first world war book is the largest. It has 66,655 names in it. And it took wow. the compiler James Pervs, 11 years to gather the necessary materials to even begin work on the book. So to collect all those names. God. And then he died in 1940. He had to pass his work along to his assistant, Alan Beto. And Alan Beto only completed the book in 1942. So the First World War wow. ended in 1918. And it took until 1942 for this book to be finished.
2: Which by 1942, Jeez. it's like the middle of the Second World War, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> so this one's a big boy. <laughs> it's a big book. but So essentially, it's literally a book of names. Every single person who's died in this conflict, just to make sure that they are remembered in this prominent place in the capital of our nation. So... Earlier, I referred to the fact that I was originally going to title this episode Cenotaphs. And the reason I didn't is because cenotaphs are a specific type of memorial. And now we come to the cenotaphs. So the English word cenotaph actually derives from Greek. So the two parts uh, kinos, terrible at pronouncing Greek, kinos, which means empty, and taphos, which means tomb. So empty tomb. Oh. So a Cenotaph is an empty tomb or a monument um, erected in honor of a person or group of people whose remains are elsewhere. And this is super applicable to the many nations and former colonies around the world who sent soldiers to the war effort overseas, primarily in Europe, in the Middle East, and in around the Mediterranean, as I said, uh, who sense. they couldn't have their bodies sent home. So... You need to have that memorial in place of that.
2: Mm. Boy, it's going to screw up archaeological records when people are are finding human remains and all of a sudden there's people from everywhere.
1: Yeah. Think 500 years from now. I don't know. I feel like the First World War and the Second World War, the 20th century will probably still be well documented. But if you don't, if it's not, holy moly, who are all these people? There's so many bodies here. This is a huge cemetery.
2: Yeah. Kind of crazy, the whole, right? The whole world's a graveyard. Or a gravesite, yeah. right? But that's not what we're talking about.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the, the war cemeteries. I'll definitely get to it in a future episode. Yeah, so an, an empty tomb, essentially. And there are many of these throughout the world. They're notably in South Africa, Bermuda, in Canada... France, the United Kingdom, there's a notable one that was kind of the imprint and like the first one that was copied a lot throughout the the British, former British Empire, what would become the Commonwealth in Whitehall in London, which was kind of iconic. There's a cenotaph in Northern Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand, and they really become the focal point of those Remembrance Day or Whatever analogous name for this day of remembrance of honoring the dead of wars, they become that gathering point for people on that day. Most of the time it's November 11th because that was the day of the end of the First World War. So cenotaphs are one specific kind of memorial dedicated to those whose bodies are elsewhere. There's also another very specific kind of memorial that are called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is kind of a similar concept to the bodies are elsewhere, but instead of just it being literally a monument, it's a monument of some kind with an unknown body interred.
2: So it's kind of like the flip side. So instead of an empty tomb of somebody we know is dead, it's a full tomb of someone who we cannot identify who yeah, is dead.
1: Exactly. And so the, the logic and the reasoning for that is because this unknown soldier can really stand in for any of the dead during the war. And because we don't know who it is and who's buried there, I feel like there's some comfort in that for the people who are grieving. Say this could be my son, this could be my father, and you just don't know, and you can believe that it is, even if there's only the tiniest chance that it actually is, that's kind of the purpose that the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier serves.
0: Even if there isn't a tomb in your town or anything to the Unknown Soldier, just knowing that potentially maybe somewhere in a different part of the world he's put to rest in an Unknown Soldier tomb. Be comforting, I imagine.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or to be there to to grieve for someone you don't know in place of their loved ones, not knowing that they should be grieving or mm-hmm. being unable to grieve for that person as well. If that was a thought that crossed anybody mind, anybody's mind, because I feel like there was a lot of maybe strong feelings about enemy combatants and such. But that just... is that is a whole can of worms right there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just we'll just put a cap on that, like one of those cat food lids. And put that aside for Steal the it.
1: moment. <laughs> uh, so two examples of Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So there's one in Canada. Surprise, surprise. I'm using Canada as an example because it's what I'm familiar with. <laughs> so there's one in Canada. It's at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. And this was added in 2000. So it wasn't originally there. It was only added in 2000. Um, wow. And it symbolizes not only the sacrifices made by Canadians who have died during war, but it's also been put to symbolize those who may in the future die for their country. So we're really setting that
2: <laughs> precedent. You will be honored if you die. If it's a Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, does that mean that they have an unidentified corpse in there? That's the function of the
1: Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. There is an
2: unidentified I... But, like, More did they dead find I, Yeah, I'm
1: wondering <laughs> where
2: they went and found this unident- Like, were they just like, like, hey, corner, do you have any John Doe's? Oh, I, or I'm maybe there a- was, like, an excavation and they
1: just saw that he was wearing a Canadian uniform, maybe? I'm not sure. I didn't look into I... how they <laughs> sourced this unknown <laughs> soldier. It's possible that there are unknown <laughs> graves in the war cemeteries that yep. have been laid out for say Canadian war dead and there's an unknown soldier mm, we need an unknown soldier that seems really icky but he was,
0: he was <laughs> yeah. sourced like some fine coffee beans or like a body works display yeah. oh god uh, dude don't even get me fucking started on you that right gotta now gotta put another
2: cat food lid on that <laughs> can
1: <laughs> yes uh, so lots the s- of worms
2: in my fridge <laughs>
1: So the second notable Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is beneath the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. So most people
2: know about the Arc de Triomphe. I didn't know there was a there was a tomb with an unknown person in it. And there is. Yeah. So
1: he was interred on Armistice Day, which is what uh, Remembrance Day was formerly called. This is a sidebar. I'm getting distracted, but I know these facts, so I'm going to spit them.
2: <laughs> Please do. Uh,
1: I don't know about the rest of the world, but Remembrance Day only started being called Remembrance Day in the 1930s in Canada. Prior to Mm. that, it was Armistice Day. The movement to rename it Remembrance Day was based on the efforts of veterans themselves because they felt the term Armistice Day was celebrating a political achievement, whereas Remembrance Day honors the people who were lost. Interesting fact.
2: A very important distinction and I think very, very much relevant to the topic.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. So in this unknown soldier beneath the Arc de Triomphe was interred on Armistice Day in France in 1920. So not until two years after the war had ended. Um, And they held a ceremony at this tomb every November 11th on the anniversary of the armistice of the first world war.
2: Again, where did they get the unknown dead?
1: I mean, we're talking France, so they're
2: everywhere. (laughs) They're everywhere, but I, yeah, rooting around in someone's garden. There's got to be an unknown dead soldier in here. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, that's callous. It just- is, but literally
1: when it comes to France and Belgium on the Western mm-hmm. Front in particular, that is literally true. These real <laughs> Frenchies just go through anywhere and they move very slightly during the war. So they just obliterate anything that's in their path. And now this is a war zone. There's no more village here. It's just trenches. It's just war. It's just blood and mud and poppies. I
0: imagine it, I've known a couple of people who've done like archaeological excavations like, on World War One and World War Two uh, battlefields, and it's really interesting because sometimes they come across like live shells that didn't explode, so they have to like call people in to deal <laughs> with them. Um, but they do still like they're still finding people who were. You know, buried in...
2: So the bigger question remains about the one in Canada, because I don't think we've had a ton of um, active combat in Canada since... I
0: still think... I stand by my theory that, you know, there was somebody found someone in a field and he had a Canadian helmet or he had something that obviously denoted that he was Canadian. That's my theory, anyway. I stand by it. It's plausible. I put money on
1: that. It's plausible. Well, that's probably literally how they would have moved them to the war cemeteries is he's wearing a Canadian outfit where I've identified him as a Canadian. So he's going there (laughs) essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the last little thing that I just want to end on is the thought that commemoration and memorials and statues and all that kind of stuff, they mean what we as a society want them to mean. So, For someone completely outside of the planet Earth (laughs) during World War I to come and see across the entire globe, there's these memorials dated to this time period with these names on it. They don't hold that inherent meaning of loss and the scale of war and the destruction. Those meanings are imprinted by the people that put them up by the society and what they value at that time, by the meanings that we continue to associate with those memorials and with the ceremonies that we hold yearly at those memorials, they don't have an inherent meaning on them. So I don't know if there's a point in the future where we won't, as a globe or as a country or whatever, care about World War I and commemorating war dead anymore. I don't pretend to know what the future is going to be like, but for now, this is how we think about these memorials is they are a testament to the loss of life and the hope that we don't enter in that kind of destructive global conflict again. But that's just our meaning that we're putting upon it. And maybe 500 years from now, people don't care and they see these memorials and they don't value that anymore and they want to take them down that's not for us to decide that's for them in the future to decide if they want to continue holding the values that we hold now then cool all the power to them and if they don't then they don't commemoration is all about the value that we put on it and that's literally all it is so if we care about these memorials then we'll take care of these memorials and that's the only way that they're going to stay being taken care of
2: yeah it's i think kind of going back to the question of whether the human cost is in any way justifiable for the outcomes that we got from the first World war i think the real focus on names and on remembrance the the veterans fighting to change it from armistice to remembrance the fact that you have two people in a legacy spending, what, 15 years just collecting names from one country's dead, from one set of conflicts. I think that that, kind of with the AIDS quilt, right, going, look at the human cost. Look at the volume. Mm-hmm. Look at all of these names and recognize that these are the names of people. I think that that suggests that collectively the answer is no. No there was nothing that justified this human cost and the fact that those names still exist even in the absence of a body and i think about this a lot as one of the the only reasons i might ever choose to have a tomb, like a, a headstone or whatever or be buried is that even if you know you're just walking by a memorial um i actually walked by one of these war memorials when i was in london in england um, just outside of Buckingham Palace that was specifically for Canadian Fallen during the First World War, even to to stop and look at names and to read to names is in some way to confirm the existence of these people, even if you have nothing else attached to it. But like, that's a name! Names go to people! There was a person with this name, and they are not here anymore. It's
0: mm-hmm. an acknowledgement.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think there's something really powerful about that, even, you know, especially when you're like, here is a, a tomb specifically for the names that we lost in the mass confusion from a war that was so much worse than anybody anticipated. As well as just these monuments of going, we can't bring these guys back, but we have their names, we know they're gone, and we're, we're going to acknowledge that they existed and they were lost in this way. Uh, I think that speaks a lot of volumes in a lot of ways. Yes. And so if you ever had a memori- a memorial... Uh, monument of any kind if you're walking around a graveyard take time read people's names you don't have to remember them but read them Mm,
1: (laughs) and if you happen to listen to this episode on the day that it comes out or the day after before remembrance day in canada or wherever you are in the world think about attending the remembrance day ceremonies or whatever in your your town and just sit with that sit with the knowledge that you've learned today about the first world war and It doesn't even have to be profound moment of silence. You can just take a moment to think about the people, which is what I usually do. Just think about people. The ordinary person who decided they were going to sign up and fight, they weren't involved in the decision to go to war. They just wanted to fight for what they thought was right. And they got into something that was a lot heavier than they thought. And maybe they died for it. Maybe they came back a little shell-shocked a little ptsd is what we know it as nowadays but just think about the people the real human people who lived full lives who were embroiled in this global conflict that nobody nobody could have imagined the scale of that's what i like to do on remembrance day well said Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at PodcastMortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at mortals underscore podcast. Our music is a mermaid's eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, Mortals. Take care of yourselves out there.